Well, good morning, Summit family. Merry Christmas to you. Uh, My gift to you is uh, I'm going to get you out of here, hopefully in time to catch most of the first half of the World Cup. Uh, That is my gift to you. I know you're typical Americans. You have no idea what a World Cup is, but some of you have sacrificed greatly and come here. Um, And so you're excited about that. If you have have your Bibles, I want you to meet me in John chapter 2. John chapter 2, Pastor J.D., myself, our teaching team, we have spent this Advent season making our way through these opening scenes in the Gospel of John, drawing our attention to who Jesus uh, is. Um, In all my years of preaching, uh, I have never gotten to preach uh, this episode in the life of Jesus. It's his coming out party uh, in John chapter 2, the opening 11 verses. I'm excited to share it with you. Um, uh, if this scene was a movie, uh, the score would be Diana Ross's I'm Coming Out. Uh, this is an amazing passage of scripture, and I'm so excited to unpack it with you. Pick me up in verse 1. Uh, John writes, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, I just, I could never call my mom woman to this day. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. I love this. Oh, the passive aggressiveness. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars. Make note of that phrase, six stone water jars. There for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. And did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good stuff first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor stuff. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Father, thank you. Thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. As we were reminded, Lord God, that Jesus was prophesied about his coming hundreds of years in advance. And he fulfilled those prophecies. The great hope, Lord God, for us who are in between the first and second advents or coming of Christ, that just as he fulfilled the promise and the prophecies that he would come once, there are other prophecies that say he will come again, and that's exactly what he will do. So we are not of those without hope. We have hope, not optimism. Optimism is for folk who buy lottery tickets. We have hope, the writer of Hebrews says, as an anchor for our souls. It is tethered to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now give me glory as I glorify your name, Lord God, tied into you to lift up your glorified son, Jesus, because it's all about him. 
So Father, I do pray that Jesus Christ would be clearly seen, that people would be saved, that they would pass from death to life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're looking at um, Kevin Richardson. Don't know if you've heard of him. He's called the Lion Whisperer. Just file this in the category of stuff you won't see my people do. If you want some entertainment, go to YouTube and just kind of type in Kevin Richardson, the lion whisperer. He has a way with lions. Um, He actually thinks he's a lion. They actually think he's a lion. I'm fascinated about his story. Where did this affinity, this passion for lions to live among them come from? Don't have time to get into all the idiosyncrasies of it or the details. Just know that years ago when Kevin was a teenager, he worked at a lion park and uh, got attached to two of these lion cubs and really grew fond of them only to have his heart broken as these cubs were taken away. And he then discovered that every single cub in that lion park that he was working at was being bred for big game hunters to kill. All of these cubs were headed towards death. And he had to do something about these cubs that had a death wish on them. So what Kevin decided to do, uh, he decided to work really hard, raise some money, start his own Lion Park, where he would rescue these cubs that were headed for death so that they might pass from death to life. So he grew attached to these cubs, and as they grew, they grew attached to him. I mean, you just watch the YouTube videos, and it's obvious these lions really think he's a lion. They run up to him, they hug him, they lick his face. I mean, it's just a trip. I'm just kind of freaking out over these videos. I mean, they really think he's one of them. But there's been some close calls over the years. He's been scratched. He's been clawed. He's been punctured several times. He's almost died trying to save the very one who have wounded him. Long before Kevin Richardson, there there was not a lion whisperer. We might call him a human whisperer. His name is Jesus Christ. God peered over the balcony of heaven and saw all of us like those cubs in that lion park with a death wish on our lives. Because of our sin, we were headed for eternal death, eternal separation from God. There was not enough moral good works, not enough quiet times, not enough tithing, not enough giving, not enough do-goodism to pay off our debt. And God in his justice was not just willing to look the other way and give us a freebie. Our debt had to be paid. Philippians chapter 2, Jesus raised his hands and says, I'll pay that debt. Took on flesh, that beautiful first advent lived the life we could never have lived, a life of perfection, died the kind of death we all were destined and should have died so that we might be set free. And yet, like Kevin Richardson, the very ones he came to save not only wounded him, we killed him. But it was all a part of the sovereign God's plan that he might resurrect a new life. 
Oh, don't get so sophisticated and mature and grown in your faith that the simple gospel story that Jesus Christ came to save sinners fails to move you. That is the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in fact, what we now have, if there's, there's one word, I now wanna spend a few moments just kind of unpacking with you this whole idea of God taking on flesh and dwelling among us is encapsulated in the theological term incarnation. The idea of the incarnation simply means in the flesh, that God took on flesh and dwelt among us. Now, you have to understand, in the first couple of centuries of Christianity, after Jesus Christ has boarded a cloud and returned to heaven, the early church wrestled with the person of Jesus Christ and what exactly does the incarnation mean. At the Council of Chalcedon, they, they nailed it. They came up with a little statement. We call it the hypostatic union. And it simply says this, will you look at it with me? In fact, I'd love for you to say it with me. One, two, three, Jesus Christ was fully man, fully God in one person without mixture. Don't think about that too long. Our little finite brains can't comprehend it. Jesus Christ, fully man, fully God in one person without mixture. He's not 80% man, 20% God. He's not 70% God, 30% man, not 80-20, not 90-10, not 60-40. I'm feeling now Harold Melvin in the blue notes. Didn't think that would go over with this crowd. I'm giving you my best stuff today, okay? Diana Ross, Harold Melvin in the blue notes. He's fully man, fully God, in one person without mixture. Just read the four biographies on them, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we see the full-on humanity of Christ. Not a humanity patterned after our humanity, but a humanity patterned after Adam's. That's important because Adam was not born with a sin nature. That's why Jesus Christ in the New Testament is called the last Adam. His humanity is patterned after, and as such, we... We see Jesus Christ get tired. We find him asleep on a boat in the middle of a storm. We find him getting thirsty like on the cross when he says, I thirst. We we find him expressing emotions in John chapter 11 when he gets the news that his dear friend Lazarus has died. It simply says that Jesus wept. He's fully human. In fact, the writer of Hebrews would say it this way. Will you look at it with me? He says in Hebrews 4, for we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. I love that. The Greek word for every is a very nuanced word. It means every. Every. Jesus Christ tempted in every way, yet without sin. But not only is he fully fully human, he's fully God. In fact, the Gospel of John, the unique contribution that John makes is that it underscores the deity of Christ. That's why John chapter 1 begins right out the gate with a verse that our Jehovah's Witness friends hate. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It is speaking of the full-on deity, the godness of Jesus. 
Jesus would talk about how he has attributes that he only shares with God. It's what theologians call the non-communicable attributes, that is, eternality. Yes, we will all live in an eternity, but we all had a definitive starting point. Jesus did not. That's why in John chapter 8, verse 58, he says, Before Abraham was, I am. And they respond by trying to kill him because they knew he was saying, I am God. He would go on to say, I am the Father are one. He would go on to say, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Let me update that language. He is saying, I am what God looks like if God took a selfie. Okay, Brian. Thank you for the theological lesson. Not sure I grasp all of it, but what in the world? Does Jesus Christ being fully man, fully God, and one person without mixture have to do with me when the alarm clock goes off tomorrow morning? Oh, let me not even try to come up with something new. Let me uh, uh, just go ahead and quote one of my favorite preachers, Dr. Tony Evans. He says, here's what it means. Jesus is human enough to feel what we feel, yet God enough to fix it. I love that. The incarnation of Jesus Christ means because he can sympathize with our weaknesses, having been tempted in every way as we are. When we come to him in our weakness, when we come to him in our failures, he does not meet us with condemnation, but compassion. He says, oh yeah, I know what that feels like. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt and the hat, but I didn't fail. <laughs> I felt it, but I didn't fail it. <laughs> and I can give you everything you need. <laughs> to overcome it. That's the good news of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Now we come to one of the opening scenes of the incarnated Christ. And he's at a wedding. And not long after being at this wedding, I love it, talk about irony, his mama tells the all-knowing God, we're out of Cabernet. We've got a problem. There's no wine. Now, I've done scores of weddings, well over 100 weddings in my pastoral career, and if there's one thing I know, when it comes to weddings, expect the unexpected. Something is going to go wrong, especially if it's, if it's an outdoor wedding. I'll just pull you into kind of one outdoor wedding that I did. It was November, a little over 10 years ago. Uh, I'm in Memphis, Tennessee, beautiful grounds, wonderful house where we're going to do the reception. But here we are at the start of the wedding. I'm there in my usual spot. Uh, the, the groom is by my side, and we're watching the, uh, the wedding party walk down the aisle uh, when all of a sudden, here's this one lady. She must have hit a hole or something because she face plants, and she's pregnant. So we all rush to help her, and praise God, she's okay, and we continue on, and we do the ceremony. Ceremony ends. I kid you not, it's November, fall of the year. We are recessing out to the house for the reception, and as the bride is recessing out, a flock of geese flies overhead and poops on the side of her face and on her dress. 
She gets inside the house. I go to check in on her. She's tears. Oh, I'm not done. She gets cleaned up, goes downstairs where the reception is. She's talking to a gentleman holding a glass of wine when someone bumps into him and he spills it all over her dress. Now, at this point, I'm like, is this a sign? (laughs) Is this not supposed to be happening? And I'm happy to report a little over 10 years later, they are still together. (laughs) But if there's one thing I've learned about weddings, expect the unexpected. Hey, Jesus, we are out of wine. No more wine. And what does Jesus do? He he fixes it. He says, hand me those six stone jars. Y'all go to them, fill them up with water, fills them up. It turns into wine, solves their problem. Now, is the punchline of the story Hey, if you've ever run out of wine, Jesus wants to fix your problem. If you want run out of wine in your marriage, proverbially speaking, Jesus wants to fix your marriage. Run out of wine in your finances. Jesus wants to fix your finances. Run out of wine with one of your wayward kids. Jesus wants to fix your kid. I'm just here to tell you, that's a very American interpretation. And man, what a wonderful way to numerically grow a church. There's just one problem. Our text actually tells us that this story has nothing to do with you. Just look at verse 11. This, the first of his, underline it, signs. Jesus did it, Cana in Galilee. Why did you do the sign, Jesus? Look at it to manifest his glory and for his disciples to believe in him. This has nothing to do with Jesus just wanting to fix the problems in your life. Great secondary application, not primary. John says this story is a sign to demonstrate the glory of Christ and his ability to save In fact, that's the whole point of the gospel of John. Look at how John ends his gospel. Look at it with me. John writes in John chapter 20, Jesus did many other, there's that word again, signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See the connection? Signs, Jesus, signs, Jesus, signs, Jesus. There's a connection between signs and the glory of Jesus and people passing from death to life. The punchline is not the sign. The sign is but a preamble to the punchline of Jesus. Now, let me help you with this because some years ago, I've said this to you before, my wife and I, we met in uh, California and we got married in Southern California and I uh, was working on staff at a church uh, in Southern California. I won't get, uh, invite you into all of our financial specifics, just suffice it to say I was Poe. I've told you that before, couldn't afford the other O and the R, just Poe. That's as far as it went for me. 
just broke, didn't have two nickels to rub together. We were, we were broke. And so because of that, when a couple from our church, middle-aged couple who we love dearly, I can just see them now, Curtis and Juanita Cobb, they came to us and said, hey, we'd love to invite you out to a steak dinner and we're paying. I didn't even know where we were going right then. It could have been Outback, could have been Sizzler. I mean, just steak dinner, you're paying, I'm all in. And they end up taking us to this really upscale place in Old Town, Pasadena. I don't think it's there anymore. It's called JJ's Steakhouse. I see it now. And uh, we dress up, we go there, man, free meal, glorious steak. Uh, we sit down, the server comes over, takes our orders. We, we order the steak, man. Uh, I cannot wait. I'm so excited. Uh, and a few moments later, to my surprise, they bring us little glasses filled with sorbet. Now, I, I'm uncultured. So I just say out loud, dessert. I didn't order dessert. I ordered a steak. Steak hadn't come. Why are they bringing us dessert before the steak to which my wife begins to wear my shins out underneath the table? My wife grew up cultured. I did not. She whispers in my ear, be quiet, silly. You're embarrassing me. They are bringing the sorbet to cleanse and prepare your palate for the steak. The sorbet is to prepare you for the main course. Signs in the Bible are the sorbet. Jesus is the main course. And here's my problem with some of my charismatic friends who I love dearly, and I would consider myself charismatic as well. Let me use the language of this church with a seatbelt. Part of my problems with my charismatic and Pentecostal brothers and sisters, and there's many wonderful things about them, is some of them have made gifts of healing and miracles the punchline. When Jesus is the punchline, those things ready us to receive Jesus. Now, let me just say this and then give you three quick things about life in the kingdom, because if there's one phrase I want you to write down in your notes app or in the margin of your Bible that really canvases this whole story, this whole story, yes, is about Jesus, but specifically, it is about Jesus and the kingdom of God. I want you to write that down, kingdom of God. Here's what I asked myself as I was studying this week. Jesus, of all the places you could have chosen for your coming out party, why a wedding and why the element of wine? Parenthetically, we have to be careful. This text is not given to us as an apologetic to say every Christian should drink. This text has nothing to do with that. This text has nothing to do with whether you should drink or whether you shouldn't drink. I wanna be very clear on that. And so I want us to just be careful, even with our freedoms in Christ, Romans chapter 14 and other places in the New Testament says, we, we have to be mindful of other people, even as we exercise what the spirit of God has given us freedom. And some people, you feel free to do this and some people you do not. We are not called to clone each other in our image. So this text is not, nothing to do with whether or not it's okay to drink but it has everything to do with the kingdom of God. So I'm asking myself the question, why, why a wedding and why wine when it comes to your coming out party? Well, the 
two things, the one thing those two things have in common is both point to the kingdom. In fact, if you just, I don't have time to get into it, if you just kind of track with the teachings of Jesus, whenever he talks about a wedding, he's using it as an illustration to point to the kingdom. I'll just call your attention to one specific teaching. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus tells the story of a, of a guy who's so excited, he's gonna throw a wedding. He invites all these people uh, to come to the wedding. Back then, uh, the, the host of the wedding, it was his job to give everybody who came garments to wear to the wedding and he had picked out the garments one individual comes he refuses the garment but he still tries to get into the wedding the host sees him and throws him out and Jesus uses that as a point to say you cannot come into the kingdom on your own terms you have to receive the very specific garments that the host Jesus is offering to you which means salvation is by grace through faith we talk about weddings in the Bible, the way Jesus uses them, they point to the kingdom. And then there is the element of wine. On the night in which Jesus is betrayed, betrayed, look at this with me in Matthew chapter 26. What does he say? Drink of it, all of you, speaking of the wine, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's what? Kingdom. Weddings and wine equals kingdom. Wedding, wine, kingdom. Wedding, wine, kingdom. And what does he have to say about the kingdom? God's dynamic reign and rule on earth. What does he have to say? The head waiter says, are you kidding me? We always serve the good stuff first so that when people get a little tipsy, we can serve the cheap stuff and they won't know the difference. But you have saved the best till last. What is he saying here? Jesus says, when I get my hands on it, what I have to offer the kingdom is so much better than anything this world has to offer. The kingdom of God is better than hookup culture. The kingdom of God is better than status. The kingdom of God is better than any amount of money you could ever make in this world. The kingdom of God, what I have to offer is so much better. Don't settle for less. The kingdom of God, God's dynamic reign and rule, it's better. Notice that the whole fulcrum of this text this story rests on one thing, it's the word crisis. We're out of wine. Remember, this is the days long before Coca-Cola or Pepsi. There's no Shirley Temples, there's no Welch's grape juice. Wine and weddings were synonymous. When you ran out of wine, you had a problem. It's like running out of cake at a birthday party. These two things are synonymous. So to be out of wine, it, it, is, it is a crisis. And what is a crisis? Let me give you a little thumbnail definition. A crisis is any situation when I find myself with far more questions than I have answers. And notice what Jesus does. He leverages the crisis to point to himself and introduce the kingdom. Here's the point. You may not love a crisis, but you need one. 
You know what Tim Keller says? Well, he says a lot, but. <laughs> Tim Keller says hardly anyone ever enters into the kingdom without a crisis. If you think of your own salvation story, I bet you nine out of 10 people in this room, your story is some kind of crisis got you outside of yourself and opened the door for Jesus to do his thing. You may not love a crisis, but you need one. Some years ago, I told you I was on an airplane when the engine went out. Smoke and fire, the 757, we're about seven, 8,000 feet up in the air. I know that because the 10,000 foot ding hadn't gone out. The engine goes out. I look at the flight attendants. They have this, oh shoot, never experienced this before. Look in their eyes. Now I'm freaking out. What I didn't tell you is now I'm looking outside the window and I just have this completely helpless thought. Today's the day I'm going to die and there's nothing I can do about it. I then, I then recall, and I'll never forget this image, looking away from the window and looking around at all the passengers and just seeing everyone holding hands, stretching out across the aisle. One woman had taken what looked like a Sharpie and was writing a set of numbers on her arm. I'd later find out that was her uh, social security number so they'd identify her body when she died. I'm like, where did you learn that? <laughs> like, how did you come across that bit of information? <laughs> Everybody on that plane was praying. I'm not here to judge anybody, but I think it's fair to guess that there are a lot of people praying who wouldn't call themselves followers of Jesus, but there's something about a crisis that gets you to stop looking inward and start looking upward and outward. God's work of transformation in our lives oftentimes begins with a crisis. In fact, someone once said, we often turn to God when our foundations are shaking only to discover it's God who's shaking them. Someone's here today, right now, and you're in a crisis. Maybe it's the first holiday season without that loved one that you lost earlier. And we walk with you and we grieve with you. But Jesus says, would you leverage that moment to not just lean into community, but look to me? Others of you, your crisis is that wayward child. Jesus says, would you leverage that crisis instead of preaching at that child, yelling at that child, screaming at that child? Why don't you just fall on your knees? And look to me, others of you, you're here today and you would not call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, but you're here maybe precipitated out of a crisis. We often turn to God when our foundations are shaking only to discover. It's God who's shaking them. This text is an invitation to stop doing life on your own terms. To experience the fullness of the kingdom. But real quickly, as we get ready to close, what does life in the kingdom look like? 
Well, look at how our text starts. Verse one, our text says, John writes, on the third day, there was a wedding. He is at a wedding, and weddings back then are like weddings now. They're, they're joyous. They're festive occasions. In fact, I just got back from Jerusalem, and as we were making our way up to the Temple Mount, we, there was a wedding party that was there, and we heard the music and, and the dancing and the laughter from, from far away. It was a festive, joyful occasion and that's where Jesus is he's not at a funeral he's he's at a wedding in fact if you just zoom out on the life of Jesus we find him in so many joyful settings dinner parties and weddings and so on and so forth that so much so that in Matthew 11 here's what they said about him they accused him of being a, a drunkard and a glutton because Jesus Christ it's full of joy. I, I love it. There's, there's an Episcopal priest that I know of who loves to hand out drawings of Jesus. And in these drawings of Jesus, Jesus' head is thrown back. He's obviously laughing. Tears are streaming down his face, holding his belly, or maybe his six-pack, however that happens. He's full of joy. I love what Max Lucado, a pastor in Texas, has to say. You look at it with me. May I state an opinion that could raise an eyebrow? May I tell you why I think Jesus went to that wedding in Cana? I think he went to the wedding to, now hold on, hear me out. I think Jesus went to the wedding to have fun. Jesus went to the wedding because he liked the people, he liked the food, and heaven forbid, he may have even wanted to swirl the bride around the dance floor a time or two. So forgive me, Deacon Dry Dust and Sister Somber Heart. I'm sorry to rain on your dirge, but Jesus was a likable fellow and his disciples should be the same. What's the kingdom like? It's a place filled with joy. Read Romans 14. Life in the kingdom is a, is a matter of righteousness and joy. It doesn't mean we're fake. It doesn't mean we don't cry, but here's what we know about the kingdom. The kingdom might be in this world, but ultimately it is not of this world, which means this world never gets the last say. So when that loved one dies, I cry, but especially if they were in Jesus, I have joy because I shall see them again. Joy. And I pray for that wayward child who's out there in the far country doing God knows what. I'm praying to the one who opened up the Red Sea, who hushed the mouths of lions, who raised a dead Jesus so he can handle my son. Joy. When the doctor's report says it's terminal, I know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Joy. Just life in the kingdom like, we are not of those who grieve as though we had no hope. Secondly, it's accessed by faith. I love this. Jesus is at the wedding. And his mama says, hey, Jesus, we're out of wine. Jesus says, woman, my hour has not come yet. I don't have time to get into all of this, but the word hour is used about nine times in the Gospel of John. The idea of hour has to do with his death, burial, and resurrection. So here's what Jesus is saying, woman, 
My hour has not yet come. Here's what he's saying. I came to save the world, not to make wine. I think that's helpful for us. I don't know about you, but I can be so self-centered and narcissistic when it comes to God. Thinking he's got to answer all of my prayer requests the way that I like it. I'm out of wine here, I'm out of wine there, I'm out of wine there, I'm out of wine there. And what Jesus is now saying in hindsight is, hey, you you know what? The, The fact that I saved you means you're kind of playing with house money right now. If I do nothing else for you, I've done enough. Woman, my hour has not come yet. I came to save the world, not to make wine. And I love this. His mama then says, as if she's completely ignoring him, she turns to the head waiter and says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. (laughs) Come on, mamas, don't act like you don't have the spiritual gift of being passive aggressive. (laughs) Do you know these are the only documented instructions Mary gives? Whatever he tells you to do, do it. We got a crisis, we're out of wine, look to Jesus, he'll handle it. We call that faith. How do I access the kingdom? Faith. How do I live in the kingdom? Faith. football season. Boy, is it glorious. Especially as a Georgia Bulldogs fan. Go dogs. Alabama people, we're praying for you. The premier position on the football field is quarterback. We can say that with confidence because every play the quarterback touches the ball. The ball's in his hands. You know what the job description of a quarterback is? When you boil it all down in a very unsophisticated way, the job description of a quarterback is to get the ball out of his hands. It's to hand it off to the running back. It's to release it. It's to throw it to the receiver. It's to release it. Quarterback's job is to take what's in his hands and to get rid of it. That's life in the kingdom. I think part of our problem is when the wine runs out in certain areas of our life, worry and anxiety kick in. We want to hold on to the ball. Worry and anxiety are synonyms for control. Hold on to it. Hold on. I got to hold on to this thing. I got to hold on to it. When God actually wants you to quarterback it. Hand it off to me. (laughs) Jesus is like, I promise you, if you throw it in my vicinity, I ain't gonna drop it. And that's how you get into the kingdom. Some of you are here, you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, and you're in a crisis, the wine's run out. What's your posture? Open hands, letting it go, surrendering all. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. Let's go home on this. Jesus is like, all right, mama, 
you in. Hey, those six jars over there, I need you to pay attention to those six jars. Notice how these six jars are described. Six stone, jar, six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. These six jars represent the law. We can say that because the law said whenever you were at a meal, you had to provide water jars filled with water so the people can, the law said, wash their hands. If it was multiple courses in between each course, the law stipulated wash your hands. These water jars represent the law and these water jars are out of water, which means the law can never fulfill. Your moralism, your do-goodism, some of the most miserable people I know are moral people. <laughs> Jesus says, I'm gonna take what you've run out of, bring them here, fill it up with water, and the water turns to wine. Now, now, forgive me. I have to know, how much wine are we talking? So I did some research on this. Average size bottle of wine today, that's in a case. So let's say a case of wine, 12 bottles, standard size bottles of wine. That's 2.4 gallons. The stone water jars say it's between 20 to 30 gallons. Let's just call it even, let's say 30. One case, 12 bottles, 2.4 gallons, multiply times 12, and that gets you to about 28.8 gallons. We'll just call it that way. So 12 bottles, one case times 12 cases, it's 144 bottles for one stone jar. Well, 12 cases with 12 bottles of wine would be 12 uh, bottles per stone jar times six stone jars would get you 864 bottles of wine. I'm gonna go out on a limb and say they're good. <laughs> Problem solved. In fact, they're probably more than good. Quantitatively speaking, they're set. You're not gonna run out. And qualitatively, the head, the head waiter says, wait a minute, we typically start out with the finest of Cabernet and then move to the Tiger Rose. That joke did not go over. <laughs> but you've saved the best till last, so it's more than what they need quantitatively and it's qualitatively better than what they've ever had. Remember, this is a sign. Wine is the blood of his new covenant. If you think this was a lot of wine, how many bottles of Christ's blood has it taken to cover every sin you've ever committed, are committing, and will ever commit. I'm gonna go out on a limb and say more than 864, and you're just one person. How many bottles is it for the millions, if not billions of people throughout world history who have entered into the kingdom by grace through faith? Not enough numbers in the world. That's quantitatively, but qualitatively, the new blood 
is so much better because it forgives us of our sins. Here's what I'm trying to say. Life in the kingdom is marked by grace. You have more in Christ than you will ever need. You have been, as Colossians 1 says, qualified to share in the inheritance. And that's not because of your good behavior. It's because of his shed blood. Oh, Mike, I hear it. I hear it. I hear it. My little chocolate church on the south side of Atlanta. We used to always talk about the blood of Jesus. Passages like this used to just stir us. And we sang a little ditty. I know it was the blood. I hear it, Mike. I, I know it was the blood. I know it was the blood for me. One day when I was lost, he died on a cross. And I know it was the blood for me. Mike, can we, as we get ready for communion, can we just sing a little bit of the blood of Jesus? saved you this morning. Hallelujah. If you believe, you ought to clap your hands. I know it was the blood. I know it was the blood. I know it was the blood for me. One day when I was lost, he died on the cross. I 